Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Thank you, Joe, for leading us in corporate worship this morning. <clears throat> of course, we just completed last Sunday about 60 plus weeks of the book of Hebrews, and so we're going to take about five weeks and five psalms. So the next five Sundays, we're covering five of my favorite psalms. Why? Well, because they're my favorite. <laughs> and so if you need another reason, well, I'll come up with something. But uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 46, Psalm 90, Psalm 112, and Psalm 139. The next five Sundays, Lord willing, before we begin our doctrinal study of the doctrine of providence, uh, the first Sunday in September, which will go through, Lord willing, the end of the year, at least 16 weeks, maybe a little longer, we're not sure, I'm not sure exactly yet, but uh, we'll see, but uh, excited about the doctrine of providence. So Psalm chapter 1, let's stand and honor the reading of the Word of God, and let us hear now the Word of the living God as inspired by His Spirit. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> Sovereign Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see great things from your word, that you would, as the hymn writer so well put it, tune our hearts to sing your grace, that God, we might leave here changed, that we might be more like Jesus, be those today who do not know you, maybe they think they know you, maybe they're living a life of deception. God, I pray that you would open their eyes and unstop their deaf ears. They would hear the call of the Spirit in accord with your word and be convicted and drawn to you irresistibly and effectually. No longer live for self, but live for your glory. God, we thank you and praise you for your word. I pray now that you would bind it to our hearts. and You would cause an abundant harvest of righteousness to grow up in us for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, growing up in the 1970s and 80s as a Southern Baptist, we were obsessed with one thing in youth groups, rock and roll. And one song in particular that we seemed to be particularly obsessed with was Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Some of you know this song, don't get this in your head right now, you know, you hear the, the horn, the, you know, the, the flute and all that stuff, don't get that in your head right now, but we were really obsessed, and we were obsessed with this particular line in the song. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And we were obsessed with that because we saw the devil in that line. I mean, think about it. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run... There's still time to change the road you're on. And rightly, we, 
We, we got the message, right? We said, okay, you can live for yourself now. You can live and there's always time. Maybe when you get old, you know, maybe you become a senior adult. You can go back to church and change your way. Think about that this morning. Are there two paths you can go by? Well, it, there are. They're exactly right. I affirm the theology of the first line of that song, right? There are two paths you can go by. And the psalmist shows us these two paths this morning. And so we're not going to obsess with the Led Zeppelin song. In fact, we're going to leave it right there. So we'll move on. We're going to talk more about Jesus than, you know, Robert Plant or something like that. So if you're hopeful about that, we'll just talk about that after church. But let's talk about the two paths you can go by. Because I would argue that Psalm chapter 1 is a summary of the entire Bible. It's a good place for the Psalter to start because it, it sets forth the two paths you can go by. And so this morning, that's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you the question right up front. You know, I love the Socratic method, so I'm just going to ask you the question and we'll answer it in due time. If there are two paths you can go by. I would ask you this, which is the path you are on? And I mean really and truly. I don't mean you go to seminary or I don't mean you grew up in a pastor's home or I don't mean you've been in church your whole life. I mean really and truly which path are you on and the two paths you can go by. Because there are two ways to live. You can live for God or you can live ultimately for yourself. Because all sin is living for yourself. Are you living for God or are you living for yourself? Whose kingdom are you building? His or yours? Are you dependent upon the word and God's wisdom or your own way and your own wisdom? They both have paths. They both have destinations. The final destiny of the path you choose is either paradise or perdition, eternal reward or eternal rejection. We're going to see that as we walk through this passage this morning. Now remember back in our series in Hebrews, I often read from the Sermon on the Mount this passage and said, I keep this in mind, keep this in the back of your head. So this is really the perfect segue into what we're doing next. Remember in, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Jesus said what about the two paths? He said, enter by the narrow gate. We have it right up there. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, underscore that, and those who enter by are many. So, wide path, easy way, road to destruction, most people are on that path. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I want you to keep this in mind, because really this is a good summary for what the psalmist is saying here. So really the Bible, you know, I've said this for years, it's really just about one thing, isn't it? Are really two things, the two paths. It's about your way or God's way. The hero of the Bible, is it you? No, it's God. Remember some of our popular hymnody from another century, we've sung our, we sort of sung ourselves into the narrative, you know, not in the way of Genesis 3, but sung ourselves as the heroes. Well, no, God is the hero of the narrative. So which way are you on? Is it the wide road and the easy way? Are you just looking for the easy life? Is your Christianity just kind of respectable, middle-class American Christianity? Is that what we're after? Is that why we're here? Watch all the right news channels. We vote for all the right people. Therefore, we must be evangelical Christians. And yet the rest of this, the living it out every day, the, the delighting in the law of the Lord are going to see, that's not there. Or maybe it's something else. 
Remember a popular analogy, the mountain analogy, I like to call it. From if you've heard this, there's a mountain. The mountain is our destination in life. God's on top of the mountain. And all religions are just merely different paths to the same mountaintop, to the same God. Which is, of course, use a good old southern North Georgia phrase, baloney. Right? It's baloney. It's nonsense. It's foolishness. They're not all the same. Jesus didn't leave us that option. And this text doesn't leave us that option either. In fact, the Bible doesn't lead us that option. You know, the Jesus of Christmas, the kind of baby Jesus is cute and cuddly. We love him, you know. Everybody loves Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me at Christmas, right? Everybody says that. But it's not that Jesus that we're called to submit to. It's the Jesus that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's that Jesus, isn't it? That's Jesus, the, Psalm one is, the psalmist in Psalm 1 is commending to us. And so that analogy just breaks down. These aren't all, according to Jesus, these aren't all roads. According to Psalm 1, aren't all roads to the same destination. Three main points here, and here's the first one. He contrasts the two. This is very simple and easy to understand. You could, I think you could, some of you could write this outline for me. I've already done it, but you could write it for me. It's so simple. Life on the straight and narrow, these first three verses, the first half, the road of the righteous. This is where he talks about human flourishing. This is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is what? In his phone? You shook your head, yes. <laughs> his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the righteous man. That's what he delights in. That's where his heart is. And don't miss the progression here of what he avoids. He, walk, he walks not, he stands not, he sits not. Don't miss, the, don't miss the, uh, the progression here. And I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon a bunch of times today because he wrote a, a commentary on he, Psalms called The Treasury of David, and it is a treasury. And I want to share some of his insights with you because I can't say it like Spurgeon said it. I'm just going to admit that right up front. No one can. So we love to quote him. We preachers, we love Spurgeon because he says in a way we can't, but you, you won't forget it. And he picked up on this. So he, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands not in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. Don't miss the verbs there. I mean, think of the progression of sin before I read Spurgeon. Think of, think of James chapter 1, 14 to 15, because this progression shows the progression of the wickedness in the life of the sinner as well. This is how wickedness takes root in your life. If you're not listening, please listen to this. James 1. How sin implants and germinates then grows in our hearts. But when each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. See the progression there? James 1, 14 and 15. The person's tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted, right? You're not in sin yet. They're enticed by their own desire. Then you're enticed. You're drawn by sin. You see it. You're tempted by it. Then now you're drawn. You're walking toward it. You see the progression here? You're not, you're, you're, you're walking toward it. Maybe you're standing in the presence of sin. It is conceived. It gives birth to sin. And sin does what? Sin brings forth death. That's what happens to the scoff. You wind up being the scoffer here. Spurgeon said, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual, but after that, 
They become habituated to evil. It becomes a, a pattern. They become habituated to evil. That's what habituated means. And they stand in the way of open sinners. So that's progression. They, they flirt with it, then they stand in the way of open sinners, he says, who willfully violate God's commands. And if left alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. So they teach evil and they tempt others to evil. You draw away others to yourself. That's why it's so important to have godly friends. We tell our kids all the time, do you have godly friends? Are they Christians? Because we know what happens when they aren't godly. They draw you away from God. You usually don't draw them to God. They usually draw you away from God. I mean, you see that, I think, in this text here. Spurgeon goes on, he says, they have taken their degree in vice. They have a, they have a PhD in sin that goes so far. They take, have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed and are looked upon by others as masters in Belial. Belial meaning another word for Satan. One of the fallen angels in paradise lost by Milton. But they become masters. They get a master's degree, a doctorate in sin, and they become teachers of Satan's way. That's what the scoffer does, right? You've seen these deconversion stories. People who a year ago they said they loved Jesus. They may have even had big ministries. They may have been sort of quasi-famous, as famous as we can be as evangelicals, right? And now they're scoffers. And you see this progression. It didn't happen overnight. And they walk away, don't they? They've walked away. And they've deconverted. And now they are the very faith they once sought to spread, they're now scoffing at it. They're sitting. They're resting in the seat of scoffers. Because that's where sin takes you. You know, that old saying, sin takes you further than you ever wanted to go, keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and costs you far more than you ever intended to pay. That's James 1, and that's Psalm 1 here. Walks not, or he walks. He stands not, or he stands. And he sits not, or he sits, right? It's a progression. Sin's not inert. It, it works in you. It'll draw you further and further from God. Young people say, well, I'll wait till later to give my heart to Jesus, to walk with him. I'll become religious after I, you know, sow my wild oats. It's not the way this works. Just like the Bible's not a dead letter and it works in you, so sin works in you to draw you further and further from the fold of God and further into sin. And you will affirm things you never dreamed you would affirm. That's why we can't play games with sin in the church. I see us playing games with LGBTQ. We want to, oh gosh, we don't want to hurt their feelings by telling them it's a sin. And yet we are happy to tell adulterers that's sin. I had someone tell me, I can't come to your church anymore because my gay friends wouldn't feel comfortable there. I said, well, how about your adulterer friends? How about your murderer friends? How about your child molester friends? Would they feel comfortable here? They shouldn't feel comfortable here, right? And we don't hate them. We're not saying that, but we're saying that we don't come to church. This gospel doesn't make me feel comfortable because I'm a sinner. And it works, it operates on my conscience, and it shows me that I'm a sinner. All those sins I just named and thousands more, it shows us, doesn't it? And yet we play games with it because we, we stand and then we finally sit and say, you know, it's okay. It's okay to call someone a gay Christian. That's okay. We want those people to feel loved, and we love them right into hell. And I know this isn't popular. I know, well, we'll cancel him. Great. Try to cancel Jesus, Right? This is, what, this is what the Word's telling us here because we're going to look at the end, and the end, boy, the end is destruction. 
We don't want to see anybody go there, right? And Spurgeon speaks of this, this, this progression of sin. I mean, the world is full of deadly corruption and godly men must first be the first to renounce the company of the ungodly. It's fashionable to talk that way, especially among Reformed Christians. It's like, well, you know, we've got all these friends. And that's great. But really and truly, if you're being faithful, they're going to be repelled by you probably. If you're living a godly life and you're speaking the truth, they're not going to like what you believe. Does that mean I have to be nasty? No, you can be nice to them. But being nice is not the same as sitting in the seat of scoffers because they scoff at what you believe. Don't give in. If we're the only one standing, let's be the only one standing, Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. I'm not giving in to this nonsense. It's just sin. Let's call it what it is. And if you look at it like all these sins, if you look at, you know, the way I put it a minute ago about, well, would I call my adulterer friends? No, you, you're disgusted by that. I think we take sin too lightly. And this text corrects that, doesn't it? We should not play games with sin in our own hearts. We need Jesus every single day. I need Jesus. I can embrace all these things I've named and things far worse. If not for the grace of God, let me say that. And you could too. I mean, the world's full of decay and the corruption, isn't it? Let us be the first to renounce it. My parents used to tell me, well, they want me to have good friends. If you sleep with the dogs, you'll get fleas. And that's right. It's a mountain way of saying what, the, what, the, what Paul says somewhere else. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company. You want to keep, I'm going to hang out with the bad people. Well, you're going to wind up bad. How do I know? Well, I've done it. I know. I, I, could, I could have had a degree in sin at one time in my life. I could have been a PhD not in church history. But in sinning boldly. When I got serious about my walk with the Lord, some of my friends who had been close to me, closer than brothers, I thought, they were no longer comfortable with me. And I hope it wasn't because I was a weirdo. Well, he's really odd. He's a strange dude. Now, I, I was self-righteous and mean to them. I hope I wasn't any of those things. Remember Jesus, he said hard things, and they did what? They walked with him no more. And if you're serious about your walk with the Lord, you're serious about righteousness, serious about Christ, you're going to have some people who like you now who won't like you later. Because the demands, the, the light from your life, the demands that, that God and Christ places on us, it's going to make them uncomfortable. I, mean, I know the attractional church has tried to make church comfortable for everybody, but the church has to be different, right? We're called to be different, different than the culture. Bring the Bible to bear on every bit of this. So you see here, the, the righteous, he walks not, he stands not, he sits not. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If your friends are fools, you're going to be a fool. You know? You say, well, shouldn't we be friends sinners? I'm not, of course, I'm not saying that. Should all of our friends be saved? I'm not saying that, but I mean, all, my closest friends are Christians. A lot of my closest friends are in this church. Because the people who live those lifestyles, they can't stand me, not because I'm not nice to them, but because they know where I stand. Do they know where you stand or are you compromising? We're, we're at the threshold of compromise, I'm afraid, even among Reformed evangelicals today. With all these things that are knocking at our door, the culture, day and night. Are we going to sit in the seat of scoffers? What's your heart supposed to do? Well, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now we're moving forward. So what's this person look like? Well, his delight, the one who doesn't sit or stand, uh, he, his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
This is what makes him different. And on his law, God's law, he meditates day and night. And here, law speaks of maybe the moral law of God, but we can substitute the word of God. We have the whole, we have the whole canon now. So his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So I want to put two words before you here. Delight, which you see in the text here, or duty. Delight. Does your heart delight in the law of God and the word of God and in the things of God? Or is it just a duty? I mean, I've been both places. I've been at a place in my life where I thought, I'm just going to do my quiet time today because I'll check the box and get it over with. This, this man, this righteous man, his delight, the delight, the affections of his heart are in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's a habitualness about his meditation on the law of the Lord. And the application to his life and his heart and his mind is the transforming of the ruling of the mind through the law of the Lord. Virgin said, is your delight in the law of the Lord? Do you study God's word? Do you make it the man of your right hand, your best companion, your hourly guide? If not, this blessing named here belongeth not to you. Churches, full of pe- churches are full of people. But how many of the people in churches delight in the law of the Lord? The sovereign creator of the universe has spoken to you has given you a book. He's written it down. He's made it easy. We've translated the Bible in, all the, in English. You, know, you have all kinds of good translations. He's made it easy for you to access. In America, we're free to access it. There must be 157 Bibles in my house. I'm a preacher. I get that. But every, you fall over a Bible, you walk around our house. You know, we can almost use it for doorstops and whatever else. Run out of paper towels. We can almost use a Bible because there's so many Bibles. And that's not the question. Is it a duty, but are we delighting in what's in that word? Or is it just a duty? I mean, the question of reading God's word is not so much we're doing it, but are we delighting in it? I mean, I think it's possible to read the Bible every day out of a sense of duty and not go to heaven when you die. There'll be a lot of good theologians in hell. I'll say, good, I don't mean good moral. I mean, they... They knew the Bible, they knew theology, but they didn't, go, they, they didn't delight in it. In fact, many of them sought to disprove it, right? I mean, we know that. Thankfully, uh, we, 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 many of us are affiliated with the seminary that loves the Word, and we don't have to, have to see that. Is the Word your best companion? Do you delight in it? I mean, the, the question the psalmist tacitly puts before us is this. Is God's Word, is God's law our delight? I mean, seminary students, we've got seminary students here. Are your studies in church history and those Greek and Hebrew paradigms that they're making you memorize, are they the delight of your heart? Are you delighting in, is it leading you to delight more in God's law or is it just a duty? Seminary will go a lot better if you make that the delight of your heart. I know it was a duty for me part of the time, but one of my professors, in fact, two of my professors challenged me to make it the delight of my heart. And I challenge you and encourage you to make your studies the delight of your heart. Boy, what greater way to spend your life. What a privilege to study you know, about the Reformation, to study God's Word, to study Romans and Galatians and Deuteronomy and Genesis and all these things. Wow. Great privilege for me. Is it for you? Do you view it that way or do you just want to get it over with? So his delight is in the law of the Lord. The cry of your heart, is it that of the hymn writer? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Is that the cry of your heart? Just to rest upon his promise? To know, thus saith the Lord, 
Does your heart sing when I repeat that? Do you delight in that? Or is that just boring church stuff to you? If this is boring, you need to check your heart, beloved. And I say that in love. If this just bores you and you say, church, it's just boring. If you've got a faithful church and you go to a faithful church, they preach the word and it bores you. You pray God will make this the delight of your soul. And he goes on, he says, the delight, it manifests itself because on his law he meditates day and night. Spurgeon again, quoting a Puritan here, he says, meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and the nutritional value out of the word into his heart and life. This is the way the godly bring forth much fruit. Meditating is not just reading and say, okay, I'm done with that. I got my, my 10 minutes in the word. I love it. The one minute Bible, have you seen this? There's a one-minute devotional Bible. One minute. It's almost heresy, isn't it? I'll give God one minute. I'll give him one. Some of us don't give him one minute, though, do we? It's a one-minute Bible. I don't want to tell you that. You'll go buy the one-minute Bible. I can handle that. I'm going to delight on that one minute. Really chew it over. No, delight. He meditates day and night. He's chewing. It's like the cow. You know, I grew up on a, a cattle farm. We chewed, watched the cows. You saw them. They chewed the cud. Had all kinds of nutritional value for those cattle. I'm glad they did. I like steak. <laughs> and you do too. But it's chewing it over. It's, it's getting a verse and getting your mind and your heart and just think, what does this mean? What does it mean for me? It's that simple. What does God mean here? What does it mean for me? And how does it impact my life? What is sin is this spotlighting? What is the, the fallen condition here it's addressing in my life? And, and, and how do I need to live in light of this? And how does it point me to Jesus? Just ask those simple questions. Where is it in the Bible? Every day, just meditate or read small. You don't have to read the Bible through in a year. I'd love for you to do that. But, I mean, read, read a chapter a day and meditate on that. Boy, it'll do you a world of good. Because the man of God meditates on it day and night. There's a, a constance about it. He does it day and night. Spurgeon said he takes a text and carries it with him all day long. And in the night watches, when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he museth upon the word of God. The law of the Lord is his daily bread, the daily bread of the true believer. I mean, sometimes when I can't sleep, I will get up. I'll have a night terror. I have those. And I'll go out in the living room and I'll just sit. And sometimes I'll just put my head down almost in my lap and I'll just meditate on a psalm. Meditate on something about fear because I'm very fearful. And ask God, just, you ask us not to be fearful, just calm my heart and my soul and, and repeat a psalm or something from 2 Corinthians or something like that because it's, I, I work hard to hide it in my heart and soul. And I don't, you know, sadly, I know, I know more about baseball history probably now than I do the Bible. That's sad. I've spent a lot of my time in doing nonsense, right? I can tell you who started starting pictures the 27 Yankees were, but I've memorized Romans, you know, or something like that. I should be memorizing Romans. Because there's so much value. I mean, Christians tell me all the time, I just, I don't know why these relationships are broken. I don't know why I have so much anxiety. I don't have so much fear. And the question I always ask them is, are you in the Word? And 999 times out of 1,000, they will tell me, no. Well, that's it. And you say, well, Pastor, I thought you don't like silver bullets. There's just an easy answer. I don't. But for the Christian, that's it. Meditating on God's Word day and night because you bring God's God's assessment of things to bear on your life. God's assessment, the sovereign Lord of the universe. You bring his assessment of things upon your life. I mean, think, think about uh, what our confession of faith says about the Bible. You have this. 
the Holy Bible, or the SBC, uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, the Holy Bible was written by divinely, men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Word of God. Word of God, right there. You have that at your disposal, and you're going to ignore it and then come and say, We've got lots of problems. Well, yeah, no wonder. No wonder. And you give them, I'll say, Well, the Bible says this, and you say, Yeah, I know, but I want some real answers. <laughs> you want real answers, and you've neglected the answer. And it takes work, and it takes digging, it takes meditation. Some of you, we talk about anxiety. I have anxiety sometimes. And the Word of God, it calms my fears. It's the only thing that does. You could talk to me all day about it. You shouldn't be anxious. Oh, whatever. Give me God's assessment of my anxiety. And boy, that will calm me right down. That's just one, that's just one little tiny area of our, uh, of our existence, right? You're, you're battling some sin. Take it to Jesus. Take it to His Word battling you talk too much you talk about people all right some guy wrote a book about talk here recently and it has a lot of scripture in it the bible talks a lot about our talk as it turns out it's available in the foyer if you're interested <laughs> two copies and you can have them just read the bible go, go to the scripture guy they want to read what that other guy the you know the the, the bag of tricks that other guy wrote you can write read scripture and boy it'll help you right meditate on his law day and night, a constant day and night. This informs your worldview. It's everything you are. And so what happens? Well, he says, here's the result. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He yields its fruit in due season. His leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Growing up on a farm in North Georgia, we had a, a really nice creek that ran through our bottom pastures. And I remember in July and August, it wouldn't rain, you know, like it does here. And the pasture would uh, die and it turned yellow, various colors of shades of green and yellow and just kind of be dust, like dust. But not alongside the creek. Those trees and those weeds <laughs> and those, that grass, boy, it was green year-round. Because that, that creek was robust. It never dried up. The picture he has you. That's God's man. That's who you are. If you're planted by streams of water, if you're meditating on the law day of night, God's word day and night, you're like a, you're like a, a tree planted by that streams of water. Those trees and those plants and, yes, those weeds, they were healthy because their roots went right down into the water where all the nourishment was, into that rich North Georgia soil that had been, uh, that, that had been moistened by that water, and they stayed healthy and strong year-round. Storms would come in and the trees would be knocked over, not those trees. Strong because they're planted by streams of water and they yielded fruit. We had pear trees. I love pears. We had pear trees, and my brothers and I, we would go eat pears. They were always there. Every year we go get pears and we get tired of eating and we throw them at each other. Nothing like a rotten pear upside your head to make a mess, to make you go have to go home and wash your hair, right? <laughs> That pear tree bore fruit because it was planted by streams of water. And you will bear fruit to the degree that you're planted by the streams of water of the Word of God. 
meditating on it day and night, being watered day and night, hiding it in your heart so you might not sin against you. To quote Psalm in Psalm 119, hiding it in your, your healthy, in your strong, planted constancy. It's planted by streams of water. Are you planted? So I'm struggling with my walk with the Lord, struggling in relationships. I'm struggling with sinful thoughts and words. Usually it's because you're not in the Word of God faithfully, regularly. Are you committing it to memory, praying, passing it through your mind, seeking to live out every single day in light of the Word of God and in, in accord with and obedience to the Word of God? You'll be straight like streams, uh, a tree planted by streams of water. and You will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in season. Not perfectly and not always at the same time. And yes, you will fall into sin and things like that, but you'll be strong Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's going to that's gonna become, you'll become more and more like that insofar as you're planted by the streams of water and the fruit of the Spirit is being born in you. Not overnight, not perfectly. You're not going to be sinless. You're going you're to start to see fruit. And things you used to struggle with, you won't struggle as much with. And maybe you won't struggle at all. Storms come into your life and you're rooted and you're grounded and you know God's assessment of your storm and you're not easily blown asunder. We get to Psalm 112, we're going to focus on this. Why God's man is not afraid of bad news. It comes, bad news is just a phone call away, a text message, an email away, isn't it? Sometimes there's some people call my phone, I go, oh no. <laughs> oh boy, if you've got kids, you know, I don't mean you're annoyed by them. You think, is this a tragedy? Is this a car wreck? diagnosis they break my tv again <laughs> you know okay maybe not that one and about streams of water and you aren't blown asunder you're not knocked over because those roots are fed and nourished by the word of god that storm becomes sanctifying grace in your life because you have God's assessment that suffering and affliction come into your life for your good and his glory. And you realize that, and it makes all the difference in the world. Now, did I say you won't suffer if you read the Word of God every day? No, I didn't say that at all. In fact, there's a very real sense in which, and you've heard me say this before, that your problems are just beginning when you become a Christian. <laughs> that's what makes the prosperity gospel so scandalous, doesn't it? I mean, that's not my life on anybody's life except those guys you're sending money to, right? But you're like a tree planted by streams of water yields its fruit in season. What about, the, what about the man, the unrighteous man? Well, he gets to that. Next, that's my second point. These will go much more quickly. I'm calling it life in the fast lane, the way of the wicked. It's fruitlessness. The wicked are not so bitter like chaff that the wind drives away. It's very simple. The wicked are not so. They're not like that. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. The picture here is the, of the threshing floor of the grain of harvest in Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern times. The, the threshing floor in Palestine, they tend to be on hills that catch the best breezes, and so grain is brought in there, and the breezes blow through, and the threshing tools used to throw it up in the air, and the grain is heavy, and it falls back into the threshing floor. And the chaff, that is the byproducts that you can't use, you can't eat, you can't cook with, it's blown away. That's very simple, isn't it? That's the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Which means their life is futile and empty and, and worthless. Because chaff is worthless. And inevitably, 
They will come to judgment. James Montgomery Boy said, if only those who are running from God could see this. I want you to see this. If you're running from God, I want you to see this. If you're out there today and you're not saved, I want you to hear this. I want you to start listening right now. We've got just a few more minutes in the Lord's Supper, but all the way, listen right now. If this is you, because you're like chaff that wind drives away, he says here. This is serious business. Your condition is critical. Boy says, because they will not listen to God and the, the world is shouting the exact opposite of the Bible's teaching. The world says that to be a follower of Christ is to be a fool. Religious people never have any fun or, fun or accomplish anything. If you want to amount to anything in this world, if you want to have fun in life, if you want to reach out for whatever you, can, whatever you want, then take it. Grab all the gusto life can give, he says. Have fun and be happy no matter what it takes. Good old 80s song summarize it this way. Don't worry, be happy. That may be your life's philosophy. It's a lie. Your life is built upon a lie. It's the greatest lie ever told. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan tell Eve? Has God really said? I mean, the world says those Christians over there at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, they're fools. They should be at the golf course this morning. They should be out making money. They should be doing something else their time instead of seeking to bring their book into, or their lives into submission to a book that's six to 10,000 years old. What fools? And you may be tempted to question that yourself and think, are we fools? Satan said, has God really said? And by you're tacitly saying, has God really said? And how did it turn out for our first parents? They took the fruit, they ate it, and what happened? Well, not so good. That's why we're here now doing what we're doing now, right? Instead of at the throne of God, worshiping Him perfectly. I mean, ironically, her eyes weren't open. Satan says, well, you eat the, you eat the fruit, God knows that. In the day you eat it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like Him. And the irony is her eyes became blind, blind to her own sin, blind to death that would eventually come, an eternal death that would eventually come along with it. I remember hearing the actress Kathleen Turner, an old actress, did movies back when I was in school. One time she was on David Letterman and she said, I would rather reign in hell with the sinners than be on my knees in heaven with the saints. The very thought of that chills my soul. And maybe you think that. Maybe you're young and you think you'll have time to repent. And I'd rather have fun with the sinners than reign with the saints. Oh, beloved, what a, what, a, what a damnable lie that is. What a terrible lie. This is what he's getting at right here. The wicked are not so, but they're, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. You're like chaff that the wind will drive away. I mean, Paul gets at this in Romans 1. He says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the creature, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so that other path, that second path, beginning in verse 4 here, you're going to eventually worship the creature. You'll eventually just worship yourself. And maybe you're doing that now. Because I don't worship myself. Well, you're going to have it your way, right? You're going to have your life and your worldview and your wisdom, and you're going to bring your life into line with that, so that is worship of yourself. Textbook, self-idolatry. I mean, Paul paints a grim picture here in Romans 1, right? Of the ungodly, 
And so does the psalmist. You're like chaff, the wind drives away. It's empty, it's futile. You say, well, maybe that's, you know, this applying to religious people. Because he's talking about the righteous here, people that think they're self-righteous. No, no, no. Oh, the Bible has plenty to say about those people too, doesn't it? And that might be our temptation here, to think we're righteous when we're not. The Pharisees, think about Nicodemus. He came to the Lord, John 3, and said, what must I do? You don't want to be saved? And he said, you must uh, be born again. Huh? Be born again. Nicodemus was a great theologian. He knew God. He knew the things of God. knew the Word of God. Highly trained, and yet he didn't know God. He'd not undergone the new birth. How about you? You're not going to get on this path of verse the righteous until you've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, until you've been justified by faith in his death and resurrection. Where are you this morning, Christ Fellowship Baptist Church? Where are you, young people? I tell my kids all the time, growing up in my house will do you no spiritual good. I'm a pastor, yes, I won't do you any good. It may, it may work against you. You may make assumptions. Don't make assumptions. Half that the wind drives away. What is their destination? Final point. Here it is. As we move toward preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper, where the two paths lead. The wicked will not, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We'll do the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. So start thinking about this and preparing your heart to take the meal. Two paths lead to a destination. Two, two radically different destinations. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And the way the wicked will perish. They will not stand in the judgment. What does that mean? Well, they'll fall. The righteous will stand. They'll stand before God and they'll be ushered into heaven. And the unrighteous, they will fall. They will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There will be no sin or sinners in heaven. The congregation of the righteous will be sinlessly, flawlessly perfect. Sin will be no more. knows the way of the righteous. I think this is saying the same thing Isaiah 66 uh, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. What captures the gaze of God? This is the one to whom I will look. Who is humble, who is contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Are you humble? Are you seeking humility? Are you contrite in spirit over your sins and sin? And do you tremble at God's word? Is it the delight of your soul? It's another way of putting it here from the psalmist. The way of the wicked will perish. It's very simple. Because in the end, the road they chose was a path to destruction. One day, the wickedness of the wicked will come to an end. As one old Southern Baptist put it, there's a payday someday. The question is, when is someday? Is it today? Could be. Is it tomorrow? It could be. But there's a payday coming someday. And you won't miss that day. 
You're going to be present for that day. You can't sleep in on that day. You're going to be there. You're going to give an account for yourself. And where will you be on that day? Will you be like chaff that the wind drives away? Think about all the wickedness afoot in our world today. 70 million babies exterminated in the name of choice by doctors. Selfishness, we know, is the real culprit. For doctors and for those politicians and their followers who supported abortion, there's a payday someday. It's not going to be this way always. For those who support the wicked redefinition of gender and marriage in our country, don't worry about them. There's a payday someday. Worry about you. You, you all know the verse, Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is what? Say it louder. The wages of sin is death. Sin pays. Sin pays death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Someone get me a communion set up back here. I meant to get it and I forgot. We're going to kind of transition into the Lord's Supper, hopefully seamlessly. Does everyone have one of those? If you do not, go to the back and fetch one. I could throw it, but that would be unseemly probably. back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as we think about this text and how it applies to us. Enter by the gate, the narrow gate. Which gate? The narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, will there really and truly be time to change your road? Beloved, today's the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've not settled this in your heart and mind before you even think about taking this, in fact, you should not take this, do not take this, supper, it's for the redeemed Settle it today. Don't be like the chaff that the wind drives away. Ask yourself, what way am I going? J.C. Ryle said, we may well tremble and be afraid if our religion is of, of that of the multitude. If we can say no more than this, that we're, we, we go where others go. We worship where others worship. And hope we shall do as well as others do at the last. We are literally pronouncing our own condemnation. What is this but being in the broad way? What is this but being in the road whose end is destruction? Our religion at present is not a saving religion. It comes down to this, where are you with Christ? Sometimes I'll ask my children this, and rightly so, where are you with Christ? Not where do you go to school, not do you go to seminary, not have you been called into ministry. Not do you go to this church or are you a member of this church? Those aren't the pertinent questions where are you, Christ, and where is your delight? 
Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. Speaking of paths, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but to the supper this morning, question yourself because the Bible says we need to question ourselves and be questioning our hearts and examining ourselves, one, to see if we be in the faith and two, to see if we're harboring some kind of uh, ill will toward another person or some pet sin that we just won't uh, repent of or some secret sin that we think we've successfully hidden from our, our parents or our children or our friends or our pastors, but we haven't successfully hidden it from an omniscient God. And if that's the case, the Scripture is full of warnings. It says there are some who have taken this meal in an, an unworthy manner, and some have gotten sick and some have died. Don't, let, don't take this. If that's you, repent and come back and take it next time. Or if you're not a believer, then let this cup pass by you and come and talk to one of the elders or anyone in this church. We're gospel people here, and we'd love to talk to you about when to be a Christian today, what it means to delight in the law of the Lord, because that's a Christian. That's how it's defined here, right? Delight in the law of the Lord. This meal is for believers who've been baptized of like precious faith of ours, baptized as believers. That's who this meal is for. Not perfect people. I haven't sinned this week or I haven't even sinned today, you know? No, that's why Jesus came, so we would be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And ask yourself this morning, am I... Delighting in God's Word, or is it just a duty? Is church just a duty? Do I come because my parents make me come, or my wife makes me come, or my husband makes me come, or I just will and be embarrassed if I don't come, or my pastors make me come, I feel like, or the culture makes me come? Because this is going to do, this will just exacerbate your condemnation. Good. But is your delight in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? Where are you with Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us, who had his blood was shed on a tree? No, I love that old hymn, one of my favorite hymns. I sang this at my mother's funeral three years ago, and it was one of her favorite hymns, and rightly so. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged into that flood. Guilty stains. No, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Here today and you don't know him, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners all throughout history who've then gone and taken this meal plunge beneath that flood. Have you been washed in that fountain today? And are you seeking? Let's put it that way because none of us delights in the law of God all the time perfectly. I don't. This is what I do for a living. <laughs> the question, are you seeking 
to delight in the law of the Lord. I'll leave a little pressure there. Not too much. Say, I want to delight in the law of the Lord. Ask him today. That's the prayer he'll answer. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall what? They might be satisfied. Is that what Jesus said? If I'm in the mood, you catch me in the right mood, they'll be satisfied. No, they will be satisfied. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Which is another way of saying delighting in the law of the Lord. That's not you today. We invite you to come after church and settle eternity today. This meal, this is, there's nothing magic about this. This won't save you. If you're lost, don't, don't take this. It'll, it could condemn you. This meal signifies the fountain. The body broken for us showing what we deserved in our wickedness. We deserve to be broken. We deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be chewed up and torn to pieces. He was broken for us. Up. Signifies this, symbolizes the blood of Christ, the surety of the promises of a new covenant. Shed for you. Let us first this morning take this bread and eat and rejoice in the body broken for us. Let us take this cup. It symbolizes the blood shed by our sinless Savior at Calvary, who was and who is the way, the truth, and the life. One comes to the Father through his death and his resurrection. Father, none of us delights in your law perfectly. None of us delights in your law and meditates on it day and night like we should. Especially given the fact that the creator of the universe has spoken, redeemed us, and loves us. So, Father, I pray that every person within this hearing, those who are lost, that today they be found by your grace. And that those who are struggling... They would find their heart's delight in the law of the Lord. and They would meditate on it day and night. And their affections and their hearts would be raised every day by that word. They would live by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name.